Hello, my name is Khalil Ghanem, and I am one of the associate editors at STI. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Steph Kiaral, Charlotte Watts, and James Blanchard for this podcast, which highlights the December supplement issue of STI. The title of that issue is The Epidemiology and Prevention of STDs, The Role of Emergent Properties and Structural Patterns. Dr. Sevki Aral is the Associate Director of Science in the Division of STDs at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Charlotte Watts is Professor in Social and Mathematical Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And Dr. James Blanchard is Professor of Community Health and Director of the Center for Global Public Health at the University of Manitoba. So without further ado, I'll welcome all of my panelists, and I'll start with James and the fundamental question, which is what are emergent properties and complex systems, and how do we apply these in the field of sexually transmitted infection? Thanks, Kilia. Well, a, a complex system um, briefly involves interactions among um, components of the system which are not easily predicted because they involve um, a variety of different patterns of interactions among the component parts of the system, including feedback loops. And these interactions often result in nonlinear results, results that are not easily predicted. And um, emergent properties are one of the properties of complex systems. And uh, emergent properties of, uh, they could be physical or chemical or biological or population systems, but these emergent properties that arise from the functioning of the component parts of the system but are not really aggregate, simple aggregates of the component properties. So an emergent property is something that is beyond um, what you would expect just from the simple uh, characteristics of the components within the system. For example, a tornado is a property of a, of a weather system. You can't easily predict the, the characteristic of a tornado or when it will arise simply from the uh, air and wa water particles, but the results actually form a more complex interaction. And so um, in the field of sexually transmitted infections, these concepts are important because STI epidemics are usually um, based on more than simple aggregate, uh, aggregate characteristics of individuals and their behaviors. So the trajectory and the amplitude of epidemics really depend more on the complex interaction between indiv individuals. And the, and the structures of these interactions, such as the configuration of sexual networks. So STI epidemics are really not easily predicted based on how we often simply describe sexual behaviors in population. So to get a better sense of this, I'm going to move to Sevki and ask her, there are several papers from your group in the supplement. Um, so how have these studies looked at behaviors in STI epidemics differently? Well, thanks, Khalil, for that a particular question. Actually, these papers, um, which were done by our group, have been picked by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, this month uh, to be uh, the highest public health impact papers that were published during the month. So I'm particularly proud of them at this point. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. I think, uh, you know, a really remarkable um, contribution is the three papers which focus on distributions rather than measures of central tendency. So rather than focusing on things like the mean, the average, the median, they look at the distributions of things. First of, the, first of these is by Licklider and looks at the concentration of sexual behaviors in the United States 
um, concentration in different subpopulations. This is followed by an article by Chesson and colleagues, which looks at the distribution of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis cases across states and counties in the United States. And the third paper actually takes the whole thing one step further and looks at trends in distribution, focusing on changes in state-level distribution of primary and secondary syphilis in the United States over time between uh, mid-80s and mid-2000s. It's really important to look at distributions because um, uh, when you look at transmission dynamics, it seems like distributions matter much more than means and mediums. We have known for a very long time that tails of distributions, those few individuals who have the many, many, many sex parts, or the few individuals who have the repeated infections, with sexually transmitted pathogens uh, actually drive the epidemics in populations. So, uh, and yet, um, our descriptive epidemiology has not over time paid sufficient attention to this. In fact, if you go back and think about uh, Anderson and May's uh, contributions to the theory of transmission dynamics, they talk about how important variance is. And I think Charlotte Watts has played a major role uh, in dealing with this concept. And yet, our descriptive epidemiology um, has not done much with variants. So we are hoping we have started a trend, um, which is focusing on distributions of both behaviors and uh, morbidities in populations. The other paper from my group is uh, actually one I um, was the lead author on. And it tries to redefine the concept of concurrency as non-monogamy uh, in response to the uh, many difficulties we have had in defining and measuring concurrency, particularly because of the importance of uh, defining time limits. Um, but the real interesting thing about this approach is that it focuses on mutual non-monogamy as being an important driver of spread of infections in populations. So non-monogamy, which is one-sided, either the man or the woman uh, in heterosexual partnerships, uh, doesn't have too much impact on population spread. But when it is mutual, uh, then it becomes a major driver of spread. Thank you, Sefki. Um, and now I'm going to move to Charlotte. There are uh, uh, several other papers in the supplement. And how do these uh, illustrate uh, the concepts that both James and Sefki have talked about? Um, I mean, I think the, the two papers that I led are quite complementary to the, to the other work that, that, that people have described. Um, the sort of issues that we've tried to grapple with um, in these papers have really tried to explore how underlying power imbalances between individuals within a population essentially can help drive and, and sort of fundamentally shape patterns of HIV transmission. So specifically, one of the papers that um, is in the supplement looked at the issue of rape in conflict setting and used modeling um, and social science data to try and, and say, well, how might rape impact on a, an individual woman's risk of HIV and then how might that add up at a population level? and in what sort of circumstances why we might expect um, rape to really have an important impact on HIV incidence. The second paper 
um, explores the issue around the potential importance of of men in positions of power in the sex work industry, so men such as pimps or potentially um, sort of steady clients who are, who are essentially involved in the social organization of sex work. And again, try, use modeling to say, well, how might these groups that might be less researched than, than sort of more traditional groups such as clients, how might they impact on patterns of transmission? So in both of the cases, what, what our work has done has really tried to pull together the kind of insights that we get from in-depth social science with the powerful predictive um, value that mathematical modeling can give us um, and to try and look in combination to try and get new insights into what are the key factors that are important for HIV transmission in different settings and to think about the implications for interventions. Thank you, Charlotte. And so the, the next question I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address to all the members of this panel, and maybe we'll start with James, go to Sefki, and then Charlotte. Um, so what are the implications um, uh, for researchers and for research methodologies? Um, so let's start with James. Well, I think there's a number. I, um, I think as Sevgi mentioned, I think uh, one of the obvious implications is uh, we, we need to think more about different ways of um, representing uh, sexual um, behaviors within a population and the structural patterns. And I think some of the innovate, innovative ways that Sevgi's group has looked at them is, is really an excellent start. I think also that um, we probably need to incorporate more um, elaborate analytical methods in some of our research to try to represent the more complex relationships between social structures and these um, sexual networking patterns um, and, and more fully incorporate some of the mathematical modeling techniques to try to uh, portray how these how STIs um, are transmitted in, in the context of a complex system. Sevki, any thoughts? One of the renewed uh, foci, uh, when we look at uh, sexual systems uh, from a complex systems approach, is a renewed interest in uh, the context, the social context, the epidemiologic context, the behavioral context, the organizational context, etc. And I think this is going to uh, kind of push the qualitative methods uh, to the forefront, and uh, I think we are going to use them more, and probably we are going to improve the quality of qualitative um, data collection and analysis methods, uh, which I think uh, will be a very welcome development in the field. Um, the other thing I wanted to attract attention to is a paper which, uh, in the special issue again, uh, it's a mathematical modeling uh, paper, uh, obviously looking at the transmission dynamics of STI. And it looks at um, populations and uh, partnerships, but it's a meta-population model, which uh, exemplifies an approach that can be used as we try to look at the role different subpopulations play. Uh, in creating the transmission dynamics in the whole population. So those are just two ideas that come to my mind. That's great. What about Charlotte? Any thoughts on your um, end? Yeah, I mean, I really, I think, um, you know, Sevgi's points about the value of social science and sort of looking more broadly and thinking about the roles of other sort of subpopulations and their potential role on transmission is something that 
we need to do much more systematically. That comes out very strongly from the work that, that we have published in this series. I think the other aspect that came out very strongly from, from our work is the importance of more mobility and temporality in, shape, in shaping endemic levels. Um, and so, for example, if you have a large turnover in a particular group, such as sex workers, actually infection may not build up to very high levels in that group. And so in that case, there might be other groups who are maybe less transient who actually could play a more central role in terms of seeding infection into that particular population. And at the moment, you know, we, we have a lot of focus epidemiologically on rates of partner change at an individual level, but we pay much less attention to rates of population turnover um, and sort of thinking about what does that mean about future epidemic trends and, and potential implications for interventions. Mm. And on that note, I think we've talked uh, about the implications for research methodologies, but uh, there, there are also implications uh, uh, of these approaches uh, on programs and policies. Again, I'm going to um, ask the, the three panelists uh, what their thoughts are on uh, the impact on programs and policies, and I will start with James again. Well, yeah, I think as, as, as Charlotte um, was mentioning, I think that um, it will be important for programs to pay attention to um, some of the more complex aspects that, that drive epidemics, so issues of mobility, uh, issues of the social um, uh, structures that, that influence uh, patterns. And, and I think rather than focusing on changing overall behaviors or average behaviors, thinking more specifically about which populations, which networks, um, and which behaviors within those populations. So starting to take a, a, a more strategic approach um, to uh, prevention programs um, and understanding um, that the prevention is there in the context of a, of a, of a complex population and, uh, and interrelating with other populations uh, rather than seeing it as, uh, as interventions directed to individuals who have their own risk behaviors and, um, and risk for, for transmitting or, uh, or acquiring STI. Mm. Sevki, your thoughts? Well, um, I agree with everything James has said. Um, in addition, uh, I think in um, implementing our programs, we tend to be, we tend to focus on discrete interventions. Something new comes about, and uh, we just focus on that and try to do more and more of it to everybody, etc. I tend to think we lack sufficient strategic thought about our programs before we start implementing them and after we are done implementing them. So I'm hoping that these new complexity approaches are going to move programs in the direction of more integrated, holistic thinking. I would love to see programs integrate their efforts at assessing the situation, planning what they are going to do, implementing their interventions, and then evaluating, and then going back to assessing the new situation. But doing this, you know, stepping back, um, uh, taking a step back and looking at the whole epidemiologic situation, looking at the whole program, and integrating all phases and uh, aspects of the program. This is what I'm hoping to see in the next decade or so. Well, thank you. Um, and finally, any final thoughts from Charlotte? 
Um, it's, it's a hard couple of speakers to follow, but um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it really does highlight the need for programs to sort of guard against complacency. You know, and as well as getting our sort of core SDI and HIV programming right, we programs really need to be thinking about the bigger systems, the sort of more hidden risks that may be less obvious but could be very important. So the sort of issues like coercion and rape, but also the sort of other structural forces that shape the individual risks that individual that the individual risks that people have. Um, I think you know when we interventions are working with such complex systems. Um, there is a real value of thinking about how to really draw on the resources and insights that research can give, and, and I think really kind of leads us to to move, try to move to models of embedded research where where research is really helping to um, give up to date pictures of what's going on and and to sort of provide mechanisms. That, that interventions and programs can use to really review well what are the issues on the ground what are the what are the what are the successes of programs and what are areas that need to be adapted to reflect the changes in the complex system that the intervention is interacting with thank you i want to thank all our three panelists for their insights and i'd like to remind our listeners that this podcast actually reflects the principles and themes that are in the uh, December uh, supplement issue of uh, STI covering emergent properties and complex systems. Thanks to our panelists and thanks to our listeners.